This is Buy-In, a valuation podcast from Horn Healthcare. What are the practical impacts on the new volume and value, commercial reasonableness, and fair market value definitions in evaluating transactions? Welcome to part two of our interview with Julie Cass, a healthcare attorney with Baker Donaldson in Baltimore, Maryland. If you missed part one, please go back and listen to that episode. We'll pick right up where we left off. You mentioned fair market value and, um, you know, the, the changes there. And, you know, there was a lot of commenters, you know, when the proposed rule first came out that really requested um, CMS established a rebuttal, a rebuttable presumption for fair market value, you know, similar to what we see in the IRS private benefit regulations. Uh, but we didn't see CMS um, create a rebuttable presumption. They, inc- they declined to establish one. Um, you know, given the large number of commenters or given the large number of requests for said rebuttable presumption, you know, why do you think CMS kind of dodged that or, or what are your thoughts as it relates to why CMS made the decision not to include that? So I think that there are two reasons that they did it. I think on the one hand, they tried before and, and most of the rebuttal presumption I think you're talking about is in survey data for physician compensation. Mm-hmm. And you're looking, you know, MGMA, am I at the 75th percentile? If I'm below it, should there be a rebuttable presumption? Or you could look at Sullivan-Cotter data. There's, you know, there previously was a list of uh, valuation surveys that if you looked at the survey and you were met certain criteria, it was a rebuttable presumption. And they actually, before this rule ever happened, they actually removed that because they said it was limiting. Yes. Um, and they cite to that in the in the new rule. And so they, they use that, that's part of it. And then the other part of it is I think, I, I don't think they believe that you can have a rebuttable presumption. It's interesting um, the way they have their comments and responses because they have a whole page of comments and responses about survey data. Mm-hmm. And then the very last comment is the one you're asking about, which is, you know, could we have a rebuttable presumption? And they basically say, no, look at our previous preambles and it'll tell you why. But the, the ordering of that is interesting because before that, they really talk about what it means to be in a survey and have survey data. And the fact that, you know, if you're, in the, if you're below the 75th percentile, they obviously got a lot of comments that said, you know, we, we believe we're fine if we're below the 75th percentile, you should create a rebuttable presumption. And they said, um, not so fast, you might not be within fair market value just because you're below the 75th. And they did take the opportunity to say, and even if you're above the 75th percentile, that may be fine too. It's not a, it shouldn't be a rebuttable presumption that you actually have a problem. It really depends on the facts and circumstances. So what I took away from that section um, is two things. One, it's really dependent on the facts and circumstances, whether someone is you know, at fair market value, depending on what the survey data shows you and, and other things. Two, um, it enforces my old adage, which is soon as someone asks me, is this fair market value? I immediately tell them that I am a lawyer and I am not a valuation expert. And they should talk to a valuation expert because I have been taught um, by, 
Christy, by you and your colleagues that, you know, just looking at survey data and picking at a number doesn't necessarily get you to fair market value. And actually, I'm interested in your thoughts on, on what you think this all means from a valuation perspective, because, you know, my inclination is just to talk to someone, they ask the question and I send them to you. Well, I appreciate that, Julie. And, and there really wasn't a significant change as it relates to the the revision or the revised definition for fair market value. And yes, we pulled out the volume of value reference, but and but it's still required in many exceptions. And so, you know, I feel like the meat of the takeaway here is just as you said is in the commentary as it relates to the reference of the survey definition and and it CMS articulating that you know you may have a physician that is kind of like in our world that rock star physician but it's it's, it's really true in said case and their the need or the compensation uh, far exceeds maybe the highest data point reported in survey data and that compensation paid to the physician is fair market value because of a number of both qualitative and quantitative factors and then on the flip side as you as you very well articulated you know which I think is is probably even the the bigger issue is there's been this um feeling that you know 75th percentile or below is always fair market value and then even more so median or below as you know as you referenced that came into play when CMS created the safe harbor for hourly physician compensation back in 2004 which they then abandoned in 2007 and so I think that you know CMS clearly saying that just because 75th percentile it, you know, or below compensation, that doesn't necessarily mean that it is fair market value because there's lots of reasons why. And, and the, well, one, if we just think about survey data in general, 75th percentile means that that's paid 75% above essentially everyone else. So how can that be? Everybody should be paid 75th percentile without really thought, rhyme, or reason. And so I appreciate that CMS very clearly articulated in the commentary that there are instances in which compensation below a certain percentile is not fair market value. And I feel like um, an opportunity for value independent valuators and uh, healthcare attorneys that I would love to hear your thoughts on this as well is for us to have conversations with our clients in which we know they have um, internal policies and procedures that are based on 75th percentile or even median and and you know compensation that's approved without a, a much thought into it and so I think this is an opportunity for us to talk to our clients and really advise them to perhaps rethink not, you know, again, maybe that doesn't mean that every arrangement needs fair market, an independent fair market value analysis or needs a lot of detailed documentation. But I do think that this is a time for clients to reevaluate some of those policies and procedures and create some additional safeguards to really ensure um, that, um, their arrangements are fair market value and are commercially reasonable. We're going to take a quick break 
and we'll be back in just a moment. Buy-in is brought to you by Horn Healthcare. For over 60 years and with more than 70 dedicated accounting and advisory professionals, Horn Healthcare is a decidedly different firm. Find us online at hornllp.com. And we're back to our conversation with Julie Cass. I mean, I think that our clients have created those policies, not so much for what is fair market value, but for when to determine that they need to go to an outside valuation expert. But I think that over time, so if you say, look, we need to always look at, at fair market value, but above the 75th percentile, we need an outside valuation um, of a particular arrangement. But, but I do agree with you, Christy, that what started out as that, which is everything needs to be evaluated, but then we need to go outside for an independent valuation on some has become somewhat of a rubber stamp mm-hmm. at below the 75th or 50th, wherever you put that percentile. And so I think it is appropriate for people to always revisit their policies and procedures and see if they still make sense. I think that the other thing that's important for our clients is not just to look at that 75th percentile compensation number. I find that sometimes a lot of folks do that, but they don't look at what the physician is coming with or what they expect them to produce. And I think those, those dollar numbers. And again, now I'm stepping into your sandbox. So tell me if I'm, you know, overstepping, but my fundamental understanding of this is, um, you know, you have to have the RVUs to support it. So if you're producing at the 10% of RVUs, but you say, but that's okay, because I'm paying only at the 50th percentile, you'd need another reason to get to the 50th percentile. Maybe it's appropriate because there's no other physician or, or they're great or whatever else it is. But that disparity also has to be taken into account and somehow accounted for. And I think exactly. folks sometimes forget that too. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on, on that? No, I, I think that's very well said. And I couldn't, again, I could not agree more with you, Julie. I think that that's, it's, it's all about telling the story. And I think, and so using the example that you just gave, if you have a physician that's with the expectation is to produce at the 10, 10th percentile, perhaps you're have a low population that you're serving, but you're in a very undesirable area for whatever reason. Um, you know, very poor payer mix, indigent care, you know, is very, very high, uh, you know, very, very rural area, or it could be, you know, location and, and, in urban location that isn't um, the best school districts or whatever for a physician to recruit. And so you have to pay um, a physician median, let's say for 10th percentile production level. And so I, I think that it's, it's about documenting the story. And so it's not just about uh, saying median is okay because median is okay. It's acknowledging that there's a disconnect for whatever reason between compensation and production and then determining, is there a story that's factual and, and can be supported? And, and in some ways this also, and I think this is where sometimes people tangle fair market value and commercial reasonless, but it's, it's telling that story of here's why, the bridge between where you're producing and where your the your needed compensation lies, these are the facts and circumstances to support that delta between the two. 
I think that's right. And I think you're, you're, you said that well in that it's both the fair market value and the commercial reasonableness of that. So I, it does sort of get intermingled, but again, you have to sort of break it apart. But there's some probably gray lines in there as you look at specific examples. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, Julie, as we're coming to a time where we're wrapping up our conversation, I would, I would really love to know what else, you know, if there was, there's a lot in the final rule, particularly as it relates to the big three, um, you know, what else do you wish or, or what else do you um, hope or that CMS may have done as it relates to the big three that they did not do? So I think that they did a good job in where they came out on the regulations um, and how how they've defined them and those things. I think what could be helpful to folks is in the preamble, had they given more examples um, of how they work in the real world and operationalize those regulations. I think they made some changes um, you know, to unit-based compensation through the rules. Um, and, the, and so it would have been useful to see how maybe those arrangements would have worked under the old rules, how they work under the new rules. Is there any difference really? They don't talk much about how percentage arrangements work. And one of the things that they change we haven't talked about today is because of the different definition and volume and value in the special rules that they created, they also went ahead and, and tinkered with the indirect compensation definition mm-hmm. um, and presumably made it easier because they collapsed the definition and the exception so that you don't need to get to the exception anymore. Um, you can basically get out of having an indirect compensation arrangement by uh, not meeting the definition, which is a good thing in this, in this circumstance, it's kind of backwards, but, but it's good not to meet the definition because then you don't have a financial relationship. And they basically said most people met the definition because of, you know, potentially an aggregate amount would not be set in advance, but a per unit amount would be. And so you'd get to the exception and you'd fall out of the exception. Um, And so now, as long as the per unit is set in advance and fair market value and doesn't change based on the volume and value of referrals, going back to that same definition um, that they've recreated in the indirect part, you wouldn't even get to the exception. You would fall out of the definition, not be within it, and you'd be done, which is all a really great thing. But because it's new, it would have been useful to see some examples of what happened. Because I've spent a lot of time with a lot of people in the healthcare bar trying to figure out, okay, what did they mean and how did they say it? And I think there's still people asking a lot of questions about how percentage arrangements work in that. And I think people have different views and think that CMS may have made a big change, but because they didn't really address it in the preamble, um, it's, it's kind of under the surface and people aren't aware of it. And so that's probably the only thing I would say, always more examples are helpful. Yes, it's very true. In closing, is there anything else that you think that it's important for us to discuss or that you, you know, as we talk about the big three that um, maybe we haven't touched on? I think that we've touched on most of the big areas of, of the big three. You know, again, I think it's really important um, 
that you understand what the concepts are. And then when you decide that you have commercial reasonableness or that something is within volume and value, that you document it appropriately. Because if you yes. haven't documented it, um, you know, it's not part of the regulation that requires you to document it, but doing that is so important and making sure that whatever it is you're documenting then supports whatever it is you're doing. Um, and so that's the only other thing I would say, cause it's not really part of the regs, but really key and important if anybody's ever looking back on this, because again, you know, I tell our clients, if you're going to go and you're going to get, for example, an independent valuation or determination of commercial reasonableness, if it's not going to support what you said, or it's, it's different from the actual contract you then negotiate in the end, it's really no good. You went out to get that as your support in case anyone ever asked. And if somebody comes back and sees the document and it doesn't actually say what it is you actually intended and, and did at the end of the day, then you have a mismatch and you what you've gotten isn't worth what you thought it was. So I would just put some emphasis on documenting everything we talked about today when you're doing a particular arrangement to make sure everything matches and supports what you're trying to do. I mean, absolutely, absolutely. We, um, you know, we tell our, our newer team members joining our team the importance of a note to file because, you know, six, really six months down the road, but especially if you fast forward one year, two year down the road and as people you know, or in and out of different organizations, and you go back and, and look at said file, you can't really remember the why, or the why is often lost, and so that note to file is so important, and I tie what you just said to the importance of our clients documenting, you know, document the why, document what you did to something very similar. I mean, I hear, um, more often than I'd like, you know, more often than I like to admit, or certainly different clients like to admit of, of those stories in which, you know, you're, someone leaves and you're looking through a file and it's like, here's an arrangement and, you know, where's the documentation for said arrangement and where's the why. And so I, I could not agree more with what you said and the, the advice to our listeners, Julia, just the importance of documentation. And particularly if you're going to go through the trouble to um, work with uh, someone like yourself or, or definitely an independent evaluator um, in my world, make sure that they, you know, that they tie together and that you are, keeping that documentation um, properly. Well, we've come to the end of our time today. Julie, it has been so wonderful to talk with you and really, really appreciate your time and your insight. It's truly been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me today, Christy. It was a great conversation. Well, you are so welcome. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in today. This is Christy Street from Horn. Until next time. Thank you for listening to Buy-In, a podcast from Horn Healthcare. Buy-In is produced by Horn LLP. Stay tuned for more episodes coming soon on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. For more about Horn, visit hornllp.com.